This morning's scripture comes from Romans uh, chapter 14, verses 1 through 4 and 10 through 13, then Romans 15, 1 through 7, and finally 1 Corinthians 13, verse 5. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. For each of us pleases his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we may have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Love is not resentful. This is God's word. Amen. Thank you, Susan. Good morning. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Church of the Redeemer also. It's good to see so many of you in the dog days of summer here. We are in the middle of a series of sermons in our church based out of 1 Corinthians 13, which is the famous love chapter that Paul wrote to the Corinthian Christians. Uh, And what we're trying to wrap our heads around is, and repent continually of, is the fact that what Paul has to say there is that above all things, Christians should be known as people who love well. And yet we are very, very keen to the the idea that we fail so many times at the very thing that God intends us to excel at. And so we've taken a few weeks to stop, to go slow throughout the slow days of summer, and to really kind of dig into this chapter phrase by phrase. This morning we come to this phrase in 1 Corinthians 13 verse 5, love is not resentful. And so that's kind of the theme that's before us this morning as you may have picked up. On as we've walked through this service. Now, the choice by translators of the ESV there to translate that word resentful is interesting because it is, it's not a literal translation, it's an interpretation. It's a great example of what happens in the process of translation. It actually is a phrase that they're trying to translate in the Greek, and they, they narrow it down to one word, but the phrase is logitatai talk. Kakon. And I do that because my, my seminary professors told me every now and then you've got to rattle off some Greek just to make sure that everybody there knows you're smarter than they are. Okay, so that's what I'm trying to do. 
Now, I can tell you, I can read that, and I do know what it means, okay? And, and you'll see in those words, logizatai, you'll see the word logic, and that word means to not, it means, the phrase means to not count the bad, is basically what it means. Logizatai means, uh, it's an accounting word, it means to remember or to keep a mental list of, and then that word kakon is a Greek word that just means evil or wrong or bad. So the older translations, if you have one of those, would say something like, love keeps no record of wrong. Love has a short-term memory when it comes to sin. Right? When you love somebody, you focus on the good things in them and not the bad things. Okay? So that's what we're talking about this morning. But what happens if you store up a list of the ways a person has hurt you or the things that aggravate you about themselves. And this is what happens in marriage. I I do a lot of marital counseling, increasingly so. And what happens uh, with people is there are years or sometimes decades of conflict and sin that create a sort of cumulative effect in a marriage. So couples live together long enough, they eventually end up with a list of grievances against one another. I'm sure it's not true of any of your marriages. Um... Uh, and, and so they end up in my office, and we talk about the argument they had last Tuesday, but they can't separate last Tuesday from the list. And so they come in, and they see me, and they say, and, they, and here's what they don't say. They don't say it like this. They, they don't look at one another and say, you know, last Tuesday, when you said this, it was really insensitive, and it hurt my feelings. Instead, it's this immediate jump to, for 20 years, you've been insensitive to my feelings. You're always insensitive. See, it's the list. And what do you call that? You call it resentment. That's bitterness. Thus, the ESV translates this phrase, love is not resentful. If you keep a record of wrongs and you stew on it long enough, it will make you resentful. But love, Paul says, love doesn't do that. Love keeps no record of wrong. Love is, and this is what I'm going to call it this morning. It's my own phrase. Uh, So take that with a grain of salt. Love is welcoming grace. Okay, instead of keeping a record of wrongs, love is welcoming grace. Resentment, what's the opposite of resentment? It's all these different cluster of things, right? If you're, to to not be resentment means you're patient, you're gentle, you're you're long-suffering with people, you forgive them. But of course, we've already dealt with all of those words earlier in this list in 1 Corinthians 13. And they kind of all go together. So I was looking for a phrase that would distinguish this particular quality of love. And I came, I thought love is tolerant. Love is hospitable. It makes room for people. And I came up with this phrase, love is welcoming grace. It invites people in without making demands on them. It does not look into their, it's on the lookout for good, not bad. It's lenient. Love is lenient with the sins of other people. And, and really, this phrase that I've chosen comes right out of the text. I've basically taken the verb there and turned it into an adjective. Romans 14 and 15, if you look, begin, begins and ends with a simple command. Paul says, welcome one another. Verse 1 of chapter 14, verse 7 of chapter 15, welcome one another. Or if you have an NIV translation of the Bible, it's receive or accept one another. So see, that's the opposite of re- keeping a record of wrongs. Love welcomes people and accepts them. Even people with an opposing view or from an opposing camp, it receives and welcomes them without passing judgment on them. Love doesn't define people by their sins. It's tolerant of their weaknesses. It's lenient with them as they struggle, okay? So that's what we want to talk about this morning. Love is welcoming 
grace. And I want to go at this subject from three points, three different directions. I want to see first our failure to love, because I think this passage really spells that out. Secondly, it gives us a methodology of love, this loving one another the way and with welcoming grace. And then thirdly, of course, we have to end with the energy for it. So I want you to see how we fail to welcome one another. I want you to see how Paul really leads us to, to see how we, we can, a methodology of beginning to welcome one another the way he calls us to here. And then thirdly, the energy or the power uh, to do it. Okay, so let's just start with our failure uh, to love. And, lo- and that's what this passage here is really about. So let me, let me explain a little bit about what Paul's addressing here in Romans 14 and 15. And if you were around in the spring, we saw this in our study of 1 Corinthians, but we'll kind of review just very, very briefly Again, okay, what's happening in, in, the, in the Roman church is there are some people who believe that Christians were obligated to follow the Jewish dietary laws, and then there were others who uh, didn't believe the same thing. So Paul says, uh, in, in, you see there in verses 1, one and 2, chapter 14, one person believe, believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. And I amen that. If you eat only vegetables, I have questions about you. Paul says you're weak. Amen. Literal translation of that verse. So there's, there's this issue of, can we eat vegetables? Can we not eat vegetables? Can we eat you know, pork? Can we not? What, what's, what's the right thing to eat? What's the not, not the right thing to eat? And there were these two different groups, and they each had really strong opinions about this, and they were opposed to one another, and it was creating all kinds of trouble in the church because the two groups both believed very strongly that they were right, that the other side was wrong, and what happened is instead of continuing to befriend one another and, and, be, and be close to one another. They began to pass judgment on one another and withdraw from one another, and it was creating division. So instead of embracing one another as brothers and sisters and working toward unity and understanding, what Paul says is they're despising one another. They're passing judgment on one another. So walk, just walk through these verses with me really quick. Verse 1. As for the weak in faith, Paul says, welcome him, but not to quarrel over over opinions. Uh, that's, the, the Greek there is really tricky. It's really the same word that's mentioned over and over again. It's just translated differently for some reason. But it basically means welcome one another without passing judgment. That's what he means by quarrel. It, they're not just arguing, in other words. They're, they're condemning one another. They're arguing for the sake of gaining power over one another so that they can condemn the other side for being wrong in the argument. Okay, Romans 14.3, verse 3, Paul goes on to say, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. So there again, you see, they're despising and passing judgment on one another. Verse 4, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It's before his own master that he stands or falls, okay? And then down in verse 10 again, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? And then lastly, verse 13, therefore do not pass judgment on one another any longer. So you see this theme, okay? The Roman Christians were doing to one another what Paul says love does not do. Love doesn't count the bad. Love doesn't condemn other people for being wrong. But that's what they're doing here. They're passing judgment. They're despising one another, which is another, just another way of saying they've become resentful of one another. Right? When they think of one another, right? When each party thinks of the other party, their face looks something like this. They eat vegetables. They eat meat. Okay? 
So the question before us then is, how do you love somebody who's hurt you? Or how do you relate to somebody whose views and values offend you and distress you? How do you love an opponent in an argument? How do you love an enemy? Even if the enemy is your spouse (laughs) or a family member or a close friend, because that is possible. See, we need to talk about this because... Can I just say, and I hope you would agree with me, we no longer, as a culture, it was one time, I think, true of us, but it is absolutely no longer true of us. We as a culture, and unfortunately Christians mimic the culture more than they do the values of the the Bible most times, and we as a culture uh, don't know how to reach across the aisle well. We don't disagree well. My my least favorite thing in the entire, and I'm not, I'm prone to exaggeration, You know, Ashley keeps me on track with that. But I want to tell you, my absolute, I'm not exaggerating, my least favorite thing, it makes me want to vomit in the whole world, is to watch two Christians argue on Facebook or on Twitter with such disdain for one another. It makes me me sick. Because it's, it's okay, even healthy, to disagree with people. But the question is, how do you disagree but still love that person? How do you disagree, even if it's, you disagree violently? I mean, it, you, there's a violent disagreement, but you still refuse not to just give in to your flesh and you really are trying to love that person. So, okay, there's, so to apply this and to help us see how we're going to work this out. Okay, why do you see, okay, let me, let me ask this question. Who do you see as an opponent or an enemy? Okay, who are you tempted to fill your mind with all the bad about that person or that group of people or that party of people and to be hypercritical of them, okay? Because that's the opposite of not keeping a record of wrongs. Who do you do that with? Okay, if you're in the room and you're under the age of 12, which I don't know if there are any of you left, but maybe a few, let me make a suggestion. One, one person that might qualify is probably a sibling. Or even a younger, if you have a younger sibling, particularly younger siblings. Maybe older siblings if they treat you poorly. If you're 12 or older, okay, let me make, let me, if, so if you're a teenager, if you're in 8th, ninth, 10th grade, let me, let me make a suggestion. Who's the opponent in your life? Who, do you, you know, who are you tempted to fill your mind with the bad about that person? It might be mom and dad. Okay, if you're a young adult trying to figure out life, maybe your parents too, or if you're married, it may be your spouse or... Maybe your mother-in-law or your daughter-in-law, okay? Or people from the other political party in general or people from another denomination or whatever it might be, okay? I want you to think about where, you're, where you do this in your own life. What do we do? See, what we do with these people in our lives is we fill our minds with all of the bad things. We think about their sins, the ways they've hurt us, the things they do that just aggravate us. And eventually, we spend so much time and energy thinking about these things that they become exaggerated, and they create a kind. They, they create in our imagination a kind of caricature of the person. You know what a caricature is, right? It's a cartoonish representation of a person that exaggerates predominant physical features. So if they have a big nose, right? Some somebody they 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 draw the the person, and it's like this huge nose where you can't see any of the lip or anything like that, right? So a big nose becomes a really big nose or whatever it might be. And so there's something in somebody that really bothers you or you've been hurt by it. And you begin to def- and what you do is you begin to create a caricature of that person around that particular sin or, or aggravating 
thing about them or their, their attribute. And you begin to define that person by that experience you've had with them. So you count up the bad, you carry that list around you, and eventually you begin to define the person by that list. So it will go something like this. You know, I have a friend who, and he was mean to me once, and I carry that experience around with me, and I stew on it, and in my heart, it's more than he was just mean to me once. It becomes he's a mean person, which eventually becomes, you know, he's only mean. He's nothing else. And then what happens is my experience of that person begins to be tainted by the caricature of him. You know, wait a minute, he was just nice to me. Well, obviously, he wants something from me because he's a mean person, right? So I'm suspicious of that. You know, he can't be nice because I have this list. And the evidence being presented to me now contradicts the list, but the list is the thing that I'm basing my evaluation on, right? You see how this works? And that's what Paul means when he says, uh, we judge, Paul says to the Romans, you're judging one another. You're passing judgment on one another and despising one another. And if you notice there in verses 10 through 13, he even uses uh, the final judgment motif. <laughs> he says, you know, there's going to come a day, and if you're here and you're not a Christian or you're new to church or whatever it might be, I want you to understand we believe that there will come a day where we will all stand before God and he will judge us and we will give an account of, of our lives. That's what Paul says there. Uh, in Romans uh, 14, 10 through 13, that we will stand before God and he will be a judge to us. What Paul says, though, is this is what you're doing. You're, you're, you're already doing that to one another, he says. You're standing over one another in, con- in, in judgment and condemning one another. There's no compassion in you. There's no patience with, you know, with one another. There's no forgiveness. You're acting as if you're God on the throne, passing judgment on one another. And can I just tell you, I already feel condemned. I mean, does anybody else wake up in the morning feeling condemned? I mean, the thought of standing before anybody, God in judgment, frightens me and scares me to death. And what I need from my friends is not to, like, do a dress rehearsal with me every day before I get there. Right? I need somebody who's going to look at me and be patient and compassionate and forgive Jonathan Edwards calls this, what he, he calls it a censorious spirit is his words. And that word censors in there. He says, love would make us charitable in our evaluation of other people. We'd look and we'd see a lot of good in them, a lot more good than bad if we were honest. But when we're judging, it's as if we have a deep prejudice against the other person, which causes us only to see their sins. Love thinks the, that's resentment. I'm so hurt or I'm so aggravated or whatever it might be. I can't see anything but the bad stuff coming out of your life. Love thinks the best of others. A censorious spirit thinks the worst. Okay? The people Paul are writing through here are passing judgment on one another in their areas of disagreement. Okay? But love doesn't count the bad. That's what Paul's trying to help us see. Love is lenient with others. Love, coming to the second point then in our outline, love... Is the opposite of that. Love offers people what I'm going to call welcoming grace. Okay, and so look, this verb that I have in mind here occurs three times in Romans 14 and 15. Okay, so look at verse 1 of chapter 14. As for the one who's weak in faith, Paul says, welcome him. Okay, then again in verse 3, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains and vice versa. For God has welcomed him, verse 3. And finally down at the very end in Romans 15, 7, therefore... Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Now, what's that? 
If you have an NIV, the word is probably accept or receive. And here's where the problem comes in. When we read that, this is what we hear. Okay, we've been thoroughly trained in our culture to think this way. We read accept one another, welcome one another, receive one another. And we think that means no evaluation, no, no negative comments, no negative evaluation whatsoever. Okay? We read accept one another and we hear affirm the other person. Don't critique them, right? Because this is the modern idea of tolerance. And I almost use the word tolerance to describe this, but it's not really helpful. It's kind of misleading. That's not what Paul's saying. Remember, Paul's talking about the strong and the weak here, okay? And the weak in this paradigm are theologically wrong. I mean, they've got it wrong. They're spiritually immature. Their lives, the problem is, is their lives are not oriented to, to the grace and the love of God for them in Jesus Christ. And so they're, put, they're making rules that shouldn't be rules. And they have all of these scruples and they're being legalistic and they, you know, all this kind of stuff. And Paul is writing and he's offering a negative evaluation of the weak. But after he you know, says some pretty hard things to the weak. He turns to the strong and he says, these people who are weak, who are wrong, welcome them without passing judgment. Now, he's not saying just accept everybody no matter what they believe. No, it's the opposite. Paul's saying, I want you to enter into a relationship with someone you think is wrong. Wrong about God, wrong about theology, wrong about their political ideology. Don't rail at them at Facebook. On Facebook, don't be quarrelsome or judgmental. Enter into a relationship with them. See, the Greek word being translated here is a Greek word that means to bring the person into your life, to bring them along, either to come alongside of them or to bring them alongside of you. And when you judge, you're standing over people and condemning them. But Paul says, if you have a disagreement with somebody, don't stand over them. That's not the way to do it. Come alongside of them. And this is something completely different than what our world knows as normal. <laughs> because, see, the modern world says, accept one another's beliefs. Only then can you have a relationship. Be tolerant. That's how you build community, right? Nobody step on anybody's toes. Everybody just tell everybody, it's, you're okay, I'm okay. Sing the Barney song, whatever you got to do, right? Just, just this love fest and everything's going to be okay. Everybody's got to accept what everybody else thinks is true, okay? And the assumption behind all of that is... You can't disagree and still be friends. But this passage claims the gospel can make something entirely different possible. That we can be friends and we can, we can wildly disagree with one another. And still be friends. Paul says accept one another. He, look, he, accept one another. He doesn't say accept one another's beliefs as legitimate. He doesn't say accept the stupidity of other people as wisdom. He says accept one another. Remember, he's, he's already said the weak are wrong. Accept one another, welcome one another, move towards one another relationally, even if you strongly disagree, even if you have a hard time understanding the other side, even if they're being mean to you. See, our, our secular culture basically goes something like this. Be tolerant of one another's beliefs and then go and live your life however you want to. So it's basically tolerance and then no relationship. But the gospel goes in the completely opposite direction. The, the gospel says... You're free to make a negative evaluation of people, but then on the other side of that negative evaluation, enter into a relationship with the person you think is wrong in such a way that you're willing to change to be in a relationship with them. Right? Critique them, but then relationship. You take that person, you bring them into your life, you listen, you try to understand their opinion and their position. You don't just dismiss them as being stupid or misinformed. You expect to learn from them. 
And so a Christian methodology, that's what we're after here for disagreement, it's absolutely unique, would be something like this. Bring the person you disagree with into your life, but don't roll over. Don't avoid conflict. Confront the areas of their life where they're wrong. Let them do the same to you, but do it without any disdain, any sense of superiority, any need to condemn and bring them down to make yourself feel better. This is the opposite of a censorious spirit that Jonathan Edwards talked about. And he said it's that censorious spirit that enjoys the, the evaluating of other people negatively. See, love, love doesn't condemn people for being wrong. It doesn't define people by their sins. Love offers friendship. It extends welcoming grace. Love doesn't count the wrong in others. It bears the wrong. Look at what Paul says there in verse 1 of chapter 15. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. And he goes on in verse, in verse, five, or verse 6 of, of 1 Corinthians 13 to say love bears all things. And that word bear means a roof or the covering of a house. So he's saying love covers the sins of others. It puts up with silliness and sin. And I'll, I'll be honest with you. Sometimes I feel like what I need more than anything else is someone who's just willing to put up with my ridiculousness. Does anybody else feel that way? Just put up with me. You don't even have to really like me. Just put up with me. Right? And that's what love does. Love does that. Love covers. It bears with. It believes all things, Paul goes on to say. In other words, it assumes good, not evil from others. It doesn't characterize or caricaturize people according to their sins and weakness. Love love doesn't define people by the sins of their past. Hello? It believes God changes people. And so it's always on the lookout for the good news and not the bad news, okay? Welcoming grace. So lastly, how do we grow then? I mean, because this is anybody else thinking, oh man, you have no idea. You might as well be talking to a fish and asking him to breathe oxygen instead of, you know, taking water in his gills. Okay? How in the world do we get this done? Where is the power behind the practice of not counting the bad in other people? Okay? And for me, I, I hear that, and Paul, and Paul might as well be saying, go run a marathon. I'm serious. And so where does the power come from that we need to do this? Okay? And the first thing we have to do is we have to understand what's happening at the heart level when we go around passing judgment on one another. We need to understand, in other words, the sin underneath the sin that we're talking about this morning. Okay? What do I mean by that? See, it's not enough to recognize that we do this. Okay? And this is what we do in the church. A lot of times we say, oh, but shame on you for doing this. You should feel guilty. Let's pray. Amen. Let's go home. Right? We want to say it's not enough for you just to, just to say, oh, yeah, I, I do this. I can, really, you're really, you know, I can really see where I do this. You have to also come to understand why. Because the reason we experience such little growth in areas like this is because we don't answer the why. So why? Why do we have such a problem with this? Why do we enjoy keeping track of the sins of others? And the answer is unbelief. We're not believing the gospel. Resentment is a failure to believe the gospel. Robert Solomon, who is a professor at an Ivy League school um, a number of years ago, in an essay that I read this week, claims that resentment is driven by what he calls an intolerable sense of inferiority. It's an incredible insight. He says, the reason we take such pleasures in highlighting other people's sins and keeping a record of them is because we're insecure and it makes us feel better about ourselves. That we live with an intolerable inferiority and therefore we'll do whatever it takes to prove that we're just as good as everybody else. And as a result, we're generous. (laughs) 
We're generous in our self-evaluation and exacting in our evaluation of others, right? The speck of sawdust in my brother's eye I treat like a log, and the log in my own eye I treat like a speck. And here's what's behind this. In this letter to the Romans, the Apostle Paul has been laboring to show them that salvation is not by works, but by grace through faith. Okay, So you get a passage like Romans 3, for example, where Paul says, and you can turn if you want, but... I'll read it to you. He says, the righteousness of God apart from the law, in other words, apart from any sense of human effort, the righteousness of God apart from the law has been revealed, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. And he goes on, what then becomes of boasting? He says, it's excluded. Now, what does all that mean? If you're here and you're new to church, Christianity is something completely different than any other religion in the world. Because you see, every other religion in the world goes something like this. You're either good or you're bad. You're either a good person or you're a moral failure. You're either a saint or a sinner, but you're never both. In other words, most, most religions and most religious people, even inside Christianity, think something like this. God keeps a record of all the good stuff we do and all the bad stuff we do. He's like Santa Claus. And if the good outweighs the bad, then you're okay. But if the bad outweighs the good, then you're in trouble. That's the basic idea. But there's a real problem with that. And it's there in Psalm 130, which we read a while ago. The psalmist says, if you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, who could stand? In other words, if God keeps a record of my sins and my spiritual accomplishments, I'm doomed. My sins are too many. I will never have enough good to outweigh all of the bad. And the psalmist begins to crumble under the weight of that. And this is why Christianity is such good news. See, every other religion says you're either good or you're bad, but you can't be both. But if, like Paul says, we're justified by faith in Jesus Christ and not works, if we're made right with God, in other words, on the basis of what Jesus Christ has done for us and not what we have done, either good or bad, then that means we are both at the same time completely loved and accepted and still morally corrupt. Martin Luther's phrase, simul justus et peccator, simultaneously just, loved, accepted, righteous, and sinful. <laughs> Do you understand what that means? It means that God does not see our good works and bless us because of them. But it also means he doesn't see our sins and punish us for them. God doesn't count the good or the bad in us at all. The psalmist sings, if you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, who could stand? And you can just feel his heart begin to sink and crumble as mine does. But in the next line, but with you, there's forgiveness. See, God doesn't keep a record of our sins. God has, this is God's amnesia. God has amnesia when it comes to our sins. God is, has, God has this uncanny ability, this unyielding forgetfulness when it comes to your sins and my sins. Is that amazing? Isaiah 43, 25, I, I am he who blots out transgressions for my own sake, and I will remember your sins no more. Micah 7, 18 and 19, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression? This is, my, this is my favorite. I love this. He will have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. Psalm 103, 
He does not deal with us according to our iniquities, nor repay us according to our sins. For as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. And how far exactly is the east away from the west? In Hebrews chapter 8, I will establish a new covenant with them. I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And I could go on. We could be here all day. But just one more verse from our assurance of pardon, which we read a while ago, which Paul says, In Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And what's so significant about that verse is that the same word that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians thirteen five to describe love, love doesn't count sins. Here Paul says, in Christ, God doesn't count our sins against us. Now, how can that be? Can God just overlook sin? I mean, can he snap his fingers and poof, the sin is gone? Of course not. The deep magic, as C.S. Lewis called it in the Narnia books, written on the stone table and engraved on the scepter of the emperor beyond the sea, is that treachery is punishable by death. In other words, sin must be paid for by blood. If not, then... The white witch declares all of Narnia would be overturned and perish in fire and water. And that's why in the story, and in our story too, Aslan, the great king, had to offer himself in the child Edmund's place. It was the only way to spare him. God does not count our sins against us because the gospel's true. He counted them against Jesus. That's the miracle of the gospel. God can say, I will remember their sins no more because he remembered them and he punished them at the cross. They've been paid for by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Therefore, if you're in him, your sins are no more. And that's the key, see. That's the key to solving the problem with counting other people's sins. If you know that God loves you and accepts you, But not because of anything you've done. If you're absolutely secure in his love, then remember that resentment comes from this intolerable inferiority. But if you know he loves you and you're absolutely secure in his love, then you can go out into relationships not needing to be right, not needing to feel superior to others. And therefore, you can disagree, but your disagreement will be without any belittling or criticizing of the person or passing judgment on the people you disagree with. You'll be able to disagree, but there'll be this tone. See, there'll be this, this, this tone of respect for the other person. You can be lenient with others when they're wrong. You can show them welcoming grace. The power to live that way comes from knowing that that is exactly how Jesus has treated you. Paul says, welcome one another, verse 7 of Romans 15. Welcome one another. And then what's he going to say? As Christ has welcomed you. He says, don't please yourself, but please others and do good to them and build them up because Christ did not please himself. So if you're here and you're a Christian, here's a truth that should be at the center of your life. Jesus Christ gave himself to you and entered into a relationship with you to love you and to do good to you when you were wrong. He did not count the bad. He did not pass judgment on you. Though he had every reason to. He did not wait for you to believe in him. He radically adjusted his life to make room for you. He welcomed you. Jesus has shown you welcoming grace. Jesus Christ opened himself up to us when we were wrong. When we didn't believe the right thing. Now how should that cause us to treat people who don't believe the right thing? Love is not resentful. Love doesn't count the bad. 
It keeps no record of wrongs. That's how God has loved us, see? And to know that, to have that truth to be the reality of your heart, I will remember their sins no more. If that truth is the reality of your heart, if it's right there in the middle of your life, then that's the power to truly love others as he's loved you. And that's what we should be known for. And so let's pray that the Spirit would come and do that work in us. Can we do that? Father, thank you that when you had every reason to crush us and to vanquish us, you did not, but you sent your only Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and you counted our sins against him. The logic of that is mind-bending, that we who deserve punishment and wrath got blessing and glory and hope of the future instead, and that the one who deserved only praise and adoration got condemnation and wrath instead. And yet it's that exchange in the gospel that is the hope and is the power, if it were to come into our lives, that would soften our hearts and humble us just enough that even when we disagree, we would do it with respect and dignity, not standing over one another and casting down judgment, but coming alongside of one another to gently rebuke and correct. Oh, I so long. I so long. And I believe our our nation is heading headlong towards self-destruction if but your church would rise up and be the ones who would lead the way to show how we can disagree well. And so do come and do this work in us. By the power of your spirit, soften us, rebuke us, but speak tenderly of your love for us, Lord Jesus. Send your spirit into our hearts to teach us to love so that we might glorify and honor you, bearing fruit uh, that is in keeping with repentance. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It is the hardest thing, isn't it, to, to believe in God and take him at his word when he says, I will remember your sins no more. But let me suggest you commit your greatest sin against him by not believing that. And so confess your unbelief and cry out to him, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, okay? And this benediction is meant to be an aid to you in your fight for faith, to truly believe that God, if your faith is in the Lord Jesus, he has not counted your sins against you, he's counted them against Christ. And therefore, there's nothing left for you but but love and blessing. And that is the promise of this benediction. So receive it, cry out to him, good Lord, help me. I believe, but help my unbelief. And receive this benediction as an aid to you in your fight for faith, so that in believing that he has taken your sins away from you, you would be one. You'd be empowered and energized to be a person who would not count the sins of others against them. Amen? So receive this benediction then. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.